Thank you, Will. That was lovely. So welcome to our guests. So glad you're able to join us here from Brazil today. That's wonderful. Makes it a pretty full house, doesn't it? Get a good group like that. Yeah. Thank you all for being with us. So we've come to the end of the series we've been uh, spending time on this summer, our Frames series. And uh, I'm very appreciative to Pastor Bernie for coming up with this concept and coming up with this idea. I think it's been a very fruitful time, and, and I've enjoyed this series and the time we spent on it. We've got one more today to talk about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray your spirit would be with us today. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and lead us to a participatory act at the end today that will make a much louder statement than anything I will say. Be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking this summer about doctrines or, or fundamental beliefs as we often call them in the Adventist church and, and talking about how doctrines are important to us because they give us clarity and a common starting point for our life of faith. But we always have to be careful with the doctrines. We've talked about this because the doctrines are designed to serve us as a frame. But sometimes when we become unbalanced in our understanding, we start to look at the doctrine and lose sight of the picture that the doctrine is the frame for. The picture is always Jesus. The doctrine is here to serve our understanding of who Jesus is, what he's done, how he is the Savior. When the doctrine becomes disconnected from the picture of Jesus, then it's an empty frame. The doctrines are there to help us focus, not to become the center of our focus. Now, the Adventist church has defined what it refers to as 28 fundamental beliefs. And if you were to go to the webpage for the Seventh-day Adventist church, you'd see a heading at the top that said beliefs. If you clicked on that, you'd go to a page that on the left-hand side had a summary of the beliefs in six points. But then on the right-hand side, if you wanted to be a little more rigorous, you went down a little ways, you'd see a place you could click that would give you a PDF of the 28 fundamental beliefs. Now, by the way, uh, recently we just had a general conference session and there was discussion related to these beliefs. Well, why in the world would we be able to have discussion related to the beliefs? Well, I'll tell you why. If you were to go down and get ready to read those 28 beliefs, before you got to those words, you would find these words. And they say this, Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed and hold certain fundamental beliefs to be the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. These beliefs, as set forth here, constitute the church's understanding and expression of the teaching of Scripture. Revision of these statements may be expected at a general conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth 
or finds better language in which to express the teachings of God's holy word. What I want you to understand in that statement is these fundamental beliefs are not unchangeable statements. They are our best understanding as a corporate body as to what the Bible is teaching. And as we grow, as times change, as situations develop, sometimes it's the decision of the church together to make adjustments to the wording. That's okay to do because you know what? We don't vote truth. Truth is. Jesus is truth. We don't vote it. Now, we can vote what we think is true, but we don't vote truth. You see, so there were some adjustments made to some of the wording of some of these doctrines at the most recent session of the General Conference. And I mentioned last week, I'm not necessarily crazy about all the changes that were made, but here's the thing. That doesn't mean I'm not still an Adventist. You see, not even everybody in the room that voted agreed exactly what they wanted. So no vote doesn't mean you're not a part of it. It's just us trying to understand God's word and trying to work together to understand his word. There were a few adjustments made, but I, I went to the official church website and I thought, well, there was at least one adjustment in the, in the doctrine we're going to talk about today, but the, the adjustment hasn't found its way to the website yet, so I don't know how long that takes. Apparently, it's not instantaneous, so uh, at some point, those will get changed, the new wordings, but so these fundamental beliefs are our attempt to understand the Bible. They're frames designed to show a picture of Jesus. We've talked about a number of different frames so far. We've talked about the Bible. We talked about creation. We talked about Sabbath. We talked about prophets. And then most recently, we talked about salvation. Now, some of these, as we organize them, involve two or three different fundamental beliefs at the same time. Today, what we're going to talk about involves just one of them. Today's theme is fundamental belief number eight called the great controversy. And this is how it, it, well, this is how it read two weeks ago. There's some minor adjustment. I think I know what it is. Here we go. All humanity is now involved in a great controversy between Christ and Satan regarding the character of God his law, and his sovereignty over the universe. This conflict originated in heaven when a created being endowed with freedom of choice in self-exaltation became Satan, God's adversary, and led into rebellion a portion of the angels. He introduced the spirit of rebellion into this world when he led Adam and Eve into sin. This human sin resulted in the distortion of the image of God in humanity, the disordering of the created world, and its eventual devastation at the time of the worldwide flood. Now, I think there's actually a change there. I think it was changed to global. So that was one of the words changed, by the way. Observed by the whole creation, this world became the arena of the universal conflict out of which the God of love will ultimately be vindicated. 
To assist his people in the controversy, Christ sends the Holy Spirit and the loyal angels to guide, protect, and sustain them in the way of salvation. This is the fundamental belief that we call the great controversy. This is what provides us with the grand narrative that explains the situation we find ourselves in every day of our lives. Now there's a couple things here that I wanna point out to you. The first is this idea here that at the beginning it says all humanity is now involved in a great controversy between Christ and Satan regarding the character of God, his law, and his sovereignty in the universe. The first point that you need to understand related to this doctrine is we got drug into this or actually we made a mistake that put ourselves in the middle of this. The fight we're in is not our fight. That's an interesting perspective, isn't it? We have become entangled in a fight that was never ours. The controversy is between God and his adversary, the devil. And the hero of the story is Jesus Christ. The conflict originated in heaven by one who wanted to exalt himself to the place of God and then led a rebellion amongst the angels. Unfortunately, in the aftermath of this event, we got caught up in it when Adam and Eve, the first humans, fell into the sin of doubting whether God's instruction was really best for them or not. You see, this was the nature of the entire controversy, was God had created an order, and within that order was the law that maintained that order. But there was one created within that order who said, I think there should be another way. And he challenged God on the order, created disharmony in heaven, then lured us into this fallen order. And as you look around you at the pain and the dislocation and the, and the suffering of this world, doesn't it make you wish we'd have just stayed with what God intended in the first place? Now, this grand narrative that ties everything together is a constructed theology that you're not going to find all the details for in any one Bible text. You're going to have to look at some different places to come to see this bigger picture. And so I want to spend a little time today going to some of those texts and seeing this come together. And we're going to start in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. We find these words, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. 
and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now those last words of this passage give you a great deal of understanding of what the whole passage is talking about. So what we see here is the great dragon was hurled down. Well, who's the great dragon? Well, that's the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled where? To the earth with the angel with his angels with him. Now, if you take this understanding that you gain at the end here and you go back to the beginning of what we read, you'll also understand it better too. It says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. We've just seen that this represents the serpent, the devil, Satan. And it says, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. We saw at the end that Satan and his angels were flung to the earth. So the stars here represent angels. So who is the woman? Well, the woman in this passage represents God's people. And before Christ, that was made manifest primarily in Israel. After Christ, the church would be represented by the woman. And what do we see here? We see a woman about to give birth. And we see this dragon there ready to consume the child as soon as it's born. So here's a dragon that is hostile towards someone that is going to come out of God's people to be born of a woman. The text tells us that she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled to the place in the wilderness prepared for her. Now, this includes a prophecy that says 1,260 days. We don't have nearly enough time to go into this right now, but let me tell you about this fall. We're going to spend some time this fall in the book of Daniel, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about numbers like 1,260 and 2,300 and so forth. Today, we'll just mention that this is God's people going to a place he has prepared for them. All right, let's try to put this together. When we go to verse 7, we see that war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but the dragon was not strong enough, and he was thrown out of heaven. Michael is the hero of the story, he is the victor of the battle. They are thrown out of heaven to the earth. And on the earth, then, they make war against God's people. 
And here we see the dragon looking to destroy one who is to come into the world out of the line of God's people. Who was the great significant one who came into the world, born of a woman from the line of God's people, the only one about whom it could said, he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Who is this talking about? It's talking about Jesus, isn't it? And the dragon wanted to destroy Jesus as soon as he came into the world because Jesus is the same one that threw him out of heaven. And now here he comes to throw him out of the world as well. And the dragon wanted nothing more than to destroy him. But this is a collapse story. You don't get the detail. But Jesus wins the victory at the cross. The dragon thinks he's destroyed him. But Jesus is raised again and taken up with God until the day he will come again. What this passage gives us is the context of this struggle. There's the heavenly context, and then there's the playing out of the struggle on earth. Well, what do we know about this one who has rebelled against God in his way? Well, actually, there's some information that shows up in the middle of some prophecies. And they're very interesting prophecies because it's a little unexpected when suddenly these words show up in the midst of these prophecies that can't be applied literally to people on earth. We see the first in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Who fell from heaven? The serpent, the dragon. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. All right. Go back for a minute. Remember how the dragon threw down with his tail a third of the stars? And how then we also found out in the passage that this is referring to the angels? Now we see the desire that was in the heart of this one. He said, I will raise my throne above the stars. I will set myself above the other angels. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. And then verse 14, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. You see, there was one who was jealous of the Creator God. And jealous of his position... And he manifests that jealousy by a rebellion against the order that God had created by saying, no, I think there's another way. All right, think about that one for a minute. I think you can recognize well enough the spirit of the one who rebelled in your own heart sometimes. Do you ever have those moments when it's pretty clear to you what God would have you do, but what you want to say is, no, I think there's another way? That is the spirit of the rebellion. 
God has given us abundant provision that if we will live according to the direction he's given us and according to his laws, then we will know peace and joy and love. But yet so often we say, no, I think I want to choose another way. That is the voice of the enemy of God. Now there is more description of him that shows up in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28. It's hidden as a description about the king of Tyre, but this description goes way beyond anything related to the king of Tyre. It says this, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite and emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. So this most exalted created being of God fell in love with himself and decided he wanted to be level with the creator. But how can that which is created set itself above its creator? Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. So he was thrown to the earth. This was the controversy. The controversy between the creator God and the angel who wanted to take his place. And the question was raised through all of the existent reality, all of this taking place before our reality. The question was raised, is God fair? Is God just? Are his laws right? Or should we believe this other guy? And so he was given a chance. God in his mercy gave a chance so that all could see what comes when you turn away from the order that God has established. It doesn't come as a result of some harsh judgment from God. No, God set things up 
his creation of love and unity, he set it up that way because that's the only way it will work. But now the challenge was there. And the serpent was thrown to the earth, and he was in Eden. And he took the form of a serpent. And this is the point where we got messed up in this story. You see, the serpent went to attack God's creation, which means his attack came to those who God had created to be in charge of his creation, this world. You'll remember that in the beginning, God created man and woman and told them, he gave them dominion over the plants and the animals and all of the earth. And this enemy of God said to himself, the best way for me to hurt God now is to turn those he has made against him. And so we look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the first humans faced a choice. Do I trust that God's instruction will give me the life I most want? Or will I believe the voice of the tempter who's suggesting that God is withholding something from me? Ironically, on this point, the tempter is actually telling the truth because the knowledge that God was withholding from us is the knowledge of evil. Now, if you remember back when we did the series on the Ten, the Ten Commandments, we talked about evil and how evil has been totally useless to us. How has the knowledge of evil helped you? In what way has the knowledge of death been a blessing in your life? In what way has the knowledge of abuse been useful to you? You see, God did not want us to know pain or suffering, or death, or loss. But unfortunately, we thought we wanted to know. And so it is in that reality where we know both good and evil that we live. But God was not willing to leave us there. Genesis 3, verse 15. After the encounter with Adam and Eve, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God is speaking to the serpent here and to the woman, and he says, Serpent, I'm not going to let you be at peace with the people. You will turn some of them to your ways, but there will be enmity between you. 
And the woman will one day produce a child who will crush your head. It goes back to the imagery in Revelation, doesn't it? Where we see the woman about to give birth to a child and the dragon interested in this child that's coming. It is the first telling of the gospel. It is the promise that born of woman will be one who will one day crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent will strike his heel. And so we see in the story of Jesus, yes, he crushes the head of the serpent, but it strikes his heel and he suffers and dies for our sins. The enemy is defeated, but he is determined in the time he has remaining to still turn as many from the Father as he can. His purpose is to hurt God. And he keeps up his attacks. And sometimes, in some settings, he's able to gain control of whole cultures, resulting in unspeakable atrocities. And this is why it was fascinating to me, some years ago, when I was on a vacation with Alicia, we were in the Yucatan Peninsula near Cancun, and had the opportunity to go to the ruins, the Mayan ruins, called Chichen Itza. Have you ever heard of that? It was a fascinating experience to go there. And, and we got to go there, and there's a number of buildings there on the site here. We got a picture of, uh, of one of them here. <clears throat> there's a, a large pyramid-type structure in the middle. And up the edge of that pyramid is a long staircase and down at the bottom of that pyramid are the heads of two serpents at the edges of the stairs. Now, it's become a really big deal to be at this particular site at equinox, sunrise at equinox each year. You know, that's the day when the day and the night are exactly the same length. It's become a big deal to be there because when this pyramid was built, it was built in such a way that when the sun rises on equinox, it shines along the edge of the pyramid in a way that creates a wavy pattern, do you see it, that looks like a serpent from the top to the heads at the bottom. Can you see that? The serpent became the primary god to this culture. And not surprisingly, you know what they used to do up at the top of that temple? Sacrifice God's children. Because that's what we all are. It became a culture that considered human death to be a wonderful thing. They had a sports competition they used to do. 
There was a field where they played and nobody knows exactly the rules, but you had to get a ball through some sort of a, a ring. When it was all over, they named the MVP, the, the man of the match. You know what the reward was to the most valuable player? Got his head cut off. Woohoo! This is what happens to a culture when God's enemy takes control. So it was all fascinating enough until we got into the van to ride back to where we had come from. And the guy in the front began to talk about uh, some of the context and the understanding of that particular religious cult and so forth. And, and so he was saying, and we were sitting in the back, and I was sort of listening until he started to say this. He said, the understanding within this religious cult was this. In the beginning, when the three determined to create the world, they weren't sure how to do it. So they went to the serpent and asked him how. Now this wasn't an evangelist up there trying to teach Adventist understanding of the great controversy. This was a tour guide telling us the background to the story. Talk about wanting to raise yourself above the Most High. Talk about hating the created work of God. That he got a whole culture to believe the three came to the serpent to find out how to do it. This is the mess we are in if God does not send a champion to save us. We needed a savior. And so God sent us a savior to defeat that serpent. And he's the one that the great controversy frame is designed to reveal. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. This is just a fragment here. We're going to jump ahead, but I want you to get this idea. As a result of the sin of Adam, sin came into all of us and death came into all of us and death has reigned as the result of that one sin. But go down to verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. So here's the deal. 
We're born the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And we carry with us the curse of sin and the curse of death. But Jesus came and lived out where we failed in faithfulness to God. And by his righteousness made righteousness available to us all. So in the one way we're born into a fallen world, fallen people on the road to death. But if we put our hope in Jesus, we're born again as the sons and daughters of God who though we still face trial, though we still face death, put our hope in the resurrection of Jesus as the promise of the resurrection to us as well that when he comes again and restores his world, we will live forever in his kingdom of glory. Through folly, we got caught up in a fight that should have never been ours. Kind of makes you crazy, doesn't it? But God in his mercy did not leave us to our chosen fate. He sent Jesus to save us. And that's what communion's all about. We are today going to receive the emblems. The bread which represents the body of Jesus broken for us. The cup which represents his blood. Part of this whole reality is that as we have suffered through the results of sin and fallenness, the universe has looked on. And I think we've made a pretty good case in the mess we've made of the world, how living contrary to what God has set for us is not joy and peace and fun. It's pain and it's heartache and it's sorrow. But I think we've also been able at times to demonstrate by God's grace through the Holy Spirit that even in the midst of this, we can still live lives of praise to God. And even in the midst of the difficulty and ugliness, it can be seen that God's ways are just and true. When we come to faith, yes, we're received and and saved into God's kingdom, but we also accept at that moment the responsibility of joining God's team, of being amongst those on the earth who love the Lord their God with all their heart and who love their neighbors as themselves. These are actions that we do that live out our confession and that demonstrate in the midst of this controversy that God is right and his enemy is wrong. Well, there's one other action we do and it's what we're doing today. We receive the bread and we receive the cup. And by so doing, we show that we belong to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gave us these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Today, we invite you to participate in our open time of communion. And by this, we mean all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are invited this day to bear witness to that faith by receiving the emblems, the, the token of his body and the cup that represents his blood. In a moment, I will say a prayer of blessing over these emblems. And then the deacons will come and will serve you as you are served, please take the bread and the cup and please hold them so that we can participate together once everyone has been served. This is our chance to state clearly for all seen and unseen which side of this controversy we're on. May our testimony be that we are with Jesus in the controversy. I will kneel and pray, and you may remain seated. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, who was given for our sin. These emblems that represent his body and his blood, we are about to receive this day. Lord, fill this service with your Holy Spirit. And may our testimony ring loud and true that in this place, we are on God's side and that we are looking forward to the day Jesus comes again. In Jesus' name, amen.